Great singing this evening. Let's go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. As we continue in our study through the book, trying to uh, understand what Peter is helping us to, as believers, uh, be able to work through in life. Uh, we, uh, we picked up in uh, this passage a couple weeks ago, about three, three or four weeks ago, and uh, only got halfway through the passage because it's, it's just it's loaded with, with truth and wanted to spend some time a little bit diving in a little bit deeper tonight uh, and asking the question, is, it, is this worth it? Is, it? is it really all this we go through, the suffering, the turmoil, the trials, the struggles, is it, is it going to be worth it in the end? And we know, we know where Peter is driving and where he's going to end up with a yes, but we want to understand why and how does he help us to, to work through it? Now, uh, as many of you know, we had the opportunity over the last week, a uh, little bit here, to go on vacation, and we enjoy doing amusement parks and doing roller coasters and different things like that. And uh, we had some interesting experiences this, this time. Uh, we had one situation where we were on that roller coaster on the left there, and all of a sudden, we're coming up over this hill, and all of a sudden, it just starts smoking and screeches to a halt. And it smells like, you know, when a, when a tractor trailer, like, locks up all their brakes, and you can, that's what the roller coaster smells like. We see this billow of smoke coming at us, and we're 60 feet above the ground, and we're, and we're like, okay, how's this going to go? And we sat there for a little over an hour waiting to get off. And, and the worst part about that one for me is it's one of those locking mechanisms that like locks on your thighs and pushes down so by the end my thigh i'm like numb from the waist down. I'm like, i can't walk it was it was it was pretty rough so i'm like okay well you know it's it's not the end of the world it's just a little little struggle so then we one night we were trying to go see fireworks and we thought well we can sneak in a quick ride on this ride called pirates of the caribbean and it's you know 30 minute wait we're like oh we got an hour and a half till that'll happen so we we jump on this ride and we're going and right before the first hill it breaks down. I'm like, what? It's a water ride. It's just, you follow the, the stream and you'll get out. It breaks down. We, we're sitting there and they let the boat in front of us get off. And they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to let you, we're going to let you ride the ride. So they put us down the hill and we go in and it breaks down again. And we sat there for another hour and a half. And you can hear the fireworks going off outside while we're all sitting inside going, well, this is interesting. And they backed us up, and eventually we got walked out of the park. And I'm like, oh, this is, you know, and you just sort of like, I'm supposed to be having fun, and all these things are happening to us. It was a, we, we had like a house we were staying in. We, we rent, a, rent like a house. And so we were going to switch the houses mid, midweek because we were able to get a, a better deal on a different house. And the day before we're going, Sharon gets an email that says, uh, we're sorry, the house is no longer available. There was a flood in the house. We're like, we're down in Florida. There is nowhere for us to go. So she's like spending all morning trying to figure this out. And you just start thinking like, what is, is this vacation even worth it? All these things are happening. All of this, this frustration is going on. It is obviously, yes, we're, you know, and we jokingly say first world problems, right? Because then you come back home and you start to realize, wait, there's bigger, there's bigger suffering. There's bigger, there's bigger turmoil in the world. It's, you know, the picture of Ukrainian believers meeting and just trying to, to stay together and realizing that there is, there's a lot going on. And you start to look and you, you start to take the bigger picture and understanding that they're, gonna, they're in positions potentially where they could face true biblical suffering, not inconveniences of life, not the struggles. And that's what Peter starts to drive at. If you remember in the context, these are the, the book of First Peter 
these believers in Asia Minor are facing the stress, the sufferings of life because they are living for Christ and their, their Christian walk. And they start to face these true, genuine struggles in their life. And so Peter, Peter starts to ask a question and helps us to understand, is identifying with Christ, is this really worth it? Is it really worth standing up for Christ at work and facing potential mockery, facing potential hardships, difficulties? So Peter helps us as he's going through. And if you remember in the passage, as we go through, he's just talked in verse 12, just to back up, give us context, because it's been three, three and a half, four weeks since we were in the passage, just to do a little review quickly. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto the prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So Peter has said that God is promising favor for the righteous, but punishment for the evildoer. Now, we go through it, and Peter says in the next verse, the logical conclusion, the the basic proverb here is, if you're doing good, if you're living right, you have the right attitude, then usually no one's going to bother you. He says, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers, those who are zealously committed to doing that which is good. And so Peter, Peter's saying our habit ought to be to do good. And that the general norm of life is that if we're doing good and we're doing right by others, that we don't face the necessary suffering and hardships. But Peter's also, he's not naive about this. He says, okay, I get that. I get that under normal circumstances that will be the case. But we are all well aware, and so were these believers, that in the midst of life, even if you're doing right, even if you're choosing to do good things to other people, bad things can still happen. And suffering can still be brought about and people still can come down upon you for standing up and and doing what's right. So we need to understand suffering from that biblical perspective. And it will help us to endure the suffering that we face, but it'll also help us to realize that identifying with Christ in suffering is, it is worth it. So as we went last time, we talked about this suffering should be expected by believers. Verse 14, he talks about but if, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, he's, he's highlighting that there, there's this potential. We're not exempt from it. Suffering is part of the life for Christians. Suffering is a result of our righteous living. He says it's on account of doing right things. So you're facing a, t- a turmoil, you're facing struggles, you're facing uh, suffering because you are doing right. He says it's not going to bypass Christians. We should be expecting it. We should understand that it's there. And suffering is not necessarily a punishment, but it is a sign of blessing. Remember what he said, and we talked about this last time. He says, but if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy or blessed are you. The same word that is used by, in the Beatitudes by Jesus Christ, for the blessed are you if you do this. He said that it's not necessarily, if you're suffering for righteousness sake, because you stand up for Christ, because you're living a holy life, because you're living a certain way, and unbelievers or non-believers are coming down against you. If the government is oppressing as, as some of our believers around the world face. But you're doing the right thing and you're living for Christ and that suffering is coming. Christ is saying that's a blessed position. And, and he highlights, Peter highlights here. He says, since ultimately none of them can do you the ultimate harm. Then we're not supposed to be fearing them. Because this is suffering is a sign of God's blessing then we need to respond correctly when suffering comes into our life. You may not be facing real suffering at this point. Maybe you are. But we need to prepare ourselves for when suffering comes. So that if and when it comes, because we're not exempt from it, how do we, how do we respond? So Peter said, don't fear. Don't be afraid what un- unbelievers can do to you. Now, again, easier said than done, because if, if you're at a point where 
there's the potential of a beheading. There is that natural fear. If there is the potential of a loss of a job, and you're like, how am I going to provide for my family? But I know I need to ethically do these things correctly. I can't, I can't lie. I can't cheat on the tax stuff. I got, I've got to make the right, the right call. And you play out the, there's, there's that potential for anxiety, for fear. But believers are not to fear the suffering that is administered by unbelievers, but rather we're to have faith that the Lord will care for us. He will vindicate the believer in the end. And then he goes on in verse 15 to remind us, okay, don't be afraid of what the unbelievers can do, but rather, in contrast, set apart Christ as Lord in your life. Make him the the hub. Make everything you do in life to be about Christ. And it is a personal decision. It says that you sanctify the Lord in your heart. It is not a decision I can make for you. This is not salvation. This is not a person getting saved. But this is Peter talking to people who are already believers and looking and saying, make sure as believers that Christ is at the center of your life, that he is the the center and every dynamic of your life is attached to Christ. And so in that we are to respect him, we are to reverence him, we are to put him in high regard, living in all areas of our life. And though it is a personal decision, notice and remember it's not a private decision. It is a choice that I make, but what does he say? He says, you sanctify Lord God in your heart, be ready to give to everyone an answer that asks you of the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He's saying when people observe our lives in the midst of suffering, When people observe our lives in the hard times of life, then be prepared. So it's not, it's not just me in a holy huddle. Nobody sees my life, but other people are supposed to be seeing us, watching our lives, observing our lives. So that means they're, they're going to see in the difficulties. We're going to be talking to others who are not believers so that when they ask us, now we're prepared to do that. We're to set apart Christ as Lord. And that requires us to prepare to give a defense. The gospel is logical. The gospel is defensible. We need to know the gospel, understand the gospel, so that when we are asked about that hope that is within us, that we are prepared to share with others why I can endure the suffering, why I can have a calm in the midst of the anxiety in the middle of this world, why I can have a long-term hope perspective that God will care for me. And so Peter, Peter reminds us to be prepared. And he says, it has a purpose. Did you catch in verse 16 that he, he goes on, he says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak of evil of you as evildoers, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So the result here of this right Christian living in the midst of the hard times, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of us responding graciously, responding respectfully when people ask us of the hope, not, not trying to, to annihilate them and bury them and what is wrong about their life, but rather sharing the hope that is within our life, doing it in a proper way, doing it with meekness and respect to them. The, the accuser then, the person who is calling us an evildoer, even though we're doing right, which is the, the, the paradox, the irony there, is that you're doing right, but the people are saying you're doing evil. And yet you know you're doing right. And when, when that happens, he says you will be humiliated. Now, we, we started to wrap up the last time right in, right in this area. Is this during the day of judgment? Is it during their lifetime? To me, I, I think it seems to be long-term perspective. Again, why? Because it says they will be put to shame. They will be humiliated. And then there's this sort of Peter's wrapping up this middle section of his book. Remember back in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they may speak you against you as evildoers, 
they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Very similar to what is being said here in verse 16, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So in one aspect, you have those who are going to observe you, those who are going to watch how you handle your life, how we go about having Christ at the center of our life, and they're going to glorify God in the, in the end. They're going to be saved. They're going to honor God. They're going to see that. But there's also those who we know will not. They will be humiliated. They will be put to, to, to shame. They'll reject. So Peter lays out, there's going to be both ends of the spectrum. What is the consistency, though, to be? It's to be us. That as we live our lives, we are supposed to be consistently displaying to the world what a Christ-centered life looks like. What a life penetrated by the gospel looks like. So we continue to live that way among the, the world so that we have the opportunities to share the gospel and how they choose to respond to the gospel. That's not upon us. It is our responsibility to live the gospel, to share the gospel, and then it, then it lies upon them to make that decision to follow after Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is to keep doing what's right, to give the answers respectfully. Instead of fearing what the unbelievers might do to us, we set apart Christ as Lord. We live reverently, we live holy, we live in a way that when people ask us questions, we can answer them with hope. We can answer them in humility, with meekness and reverence, verse 16, having that, that, that responsibility. Why? Because suffering needs to be seen as that powerful testimony for believers. That's why we hear of, of individuals saying, I'm going to go back in to countries to, be, to, to share the gospel. Even in the midst of hardships and suffering, in the midst of a war, I'm going to go in because it's going to provide opportunities for the gospel. Because suffering should be seen as a powerful testimony for this. And uh, it's to never suffer, it's to never have been blessed. There is a blessedness to suffering. That's what the passage talks about. But he talks about our identification with Christ. Having your conversation, the end of verse 16, in Christ. Handling suffering is going to mean having Christ at the center. We're going to handle it correctly. Christ is going to be the one who is going to help us get through that. Because if we get our eyes off of Christ in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, we get it just on ourselves. We focus all the wrong ways and we handle things incorrectly. It's important to understand that this, this suffering, it's not a sign of divine displeasure. The suffering that Peter is talking about here for living righteously is not God saying, well, I'm just upset that they're living righteously, so I'm going to chasten them. He's, he's looking and saying, no, this is a blessedness. This is a, this is a good thing that, that is there. Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing, that you suffer for well-doing rather than for doing evil. It should be seen. Suffering should be seen uh, as part of God's plan. I remember, I thought Don was here. I thought I saw Don earlier. But Don Bishop and I were talking about this, that this is, the, suffering is part and parcel for the Christian life. There is, there is a dynamic in which we are called to suffer. Suffering can come from doing good. It can come from doing evil. It can come from, from poor choices and we face the consequences that we have. But in this case, he's saying, if it's, if it's God's will for us to be suffering, if God sees it as necessary, and Peter goes on and he says, you may see that you're suffering then as a test. It's a testimony. It's an evangelistic opportunity because God has allowed this into our life, even if we're doing well and we're doing good. But suffering sometimes is not necessarily from God. First Peter chapter 5, verse uh, 8. 
where it talks about Satan as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9 then talks about because of that, there is suffering. So suffering does come from different perspectives. Suffering comes from others. But in this case, Paul, Peter is talking about reminding us that says, hey, if you're facing suffering for doing good, and the other people who are looking at it are saying it's evil, and they're, they're causing difficulties in your life, he's saying that is a blessed position to be in. Because you're living righteous and holy for God, and it's coming about. Suffering may come. We have to accept that fact, that truth of life, that suffering may come. If it does, be sure that it comes for your righteous deeds. And not as a result of your sinful choices, your bad actions that we, that we choose. That it comes under then the control of God who desires our good. We look and we say, okay, this is here. I, I feel like right now before God I'm living right, and these things are happening. I'm going to trust that God has some plan in it. I'm going to look for the opportunities to share the gospel. I'm going to look for the opportunities to respond correctly. I'm going to look for the lessons that God has in this moment for me to learn from the suffering. And it's a tough pill to swallow. We, we joke about horse pills, the big pills. You know, our kid will get a big pill and they'll be like, I can't do that. And you're like, yeah, you can. But it, it just takes time. This, is, this can be a hard pill. Peter, Peter gives us a hard pill here on suffering to say that we should expect suffering that we should realize that suffering can really be used as a powerful testimony. To, to accept the fact that suffering may very well be God part of, and is part of God's providential plan in our life. I, I don't know about you, but I don't like suffering. I, don't, I like the easy road. I like it to just be nice and chill. I don't like the difficulties. I don't like the hardships that come in life. I don't like the ups and downs. I just want it nice and easy. So it becomes a hard pill to swallow when you're going through difficult times and you're facing sufferings in your life to say, wait, God, God has this for a reason. This, this could very well and is part of God's plan for my life. And I should expect that. So Peter, knowing that that is a hard pill for us, that that is a difficult thing for us to swallow, he says, let me give you a little bit of encouragement. Let me give you an illustration, an example that says suffering, it, it, it's worth it. it. It will be worth it. Have you, ever, have you ever been in that situation where we, we, we took the kids to a water park when they were little? And uh, unlike some people who get stuck in water slides, I didn't get stuck in a water slide. Um, I've hurt myself on them. But no, I, I, took, uh, I took Dylan, didn't want to go down a water slide at first. He's like, no, no, no. So I said, you know what? I'll go first, then you come after me. And the first time I went down and she stayed at the top. And I'm like, oh. So I got to climb back up and I went down and then she went down. And there was that confidence because somebody went first. So then she started, Zach was on this little, little slide. She's like, he's like, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. So Dylan then said, I'll, I'll go. So she would go first, and then Zach would scoot to the edge, and he'd be crying, crying. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then he would giggle all the way down the slide. And he would love it. But it was because somebody went first. And Peter says, Let, let's talk about suffering for a moment. And he almost like... He almost like does this reversal, like, you're, why did we jump to Jesus Christ? But Peter says, think about it. You are suffering. You're going through a hard time, but let me tell you about the one who went through it first. Let me, let me tell you about the one who went through it in an ultimate way. And he looks and he says, Christ went through suffering. And that's in the midst of our suffering. How do we get encouragement? How do we know that it's worth it? Because we put our eyes on Christ and we can see what Christ went through and what Christ battled and, and how he did. So he goes on in verse 18. For Christ has also suffered for sins. And Peter's going to start talking about 
the comfort that we know that we can have in the illustration of the greatest perspective that suffering does lead to the pathway of glory. He looks at Christ, he looks at his suffering, and he says, because of what Christ went through, we can have comfort, we can have security, we can have confidence that even in the midst of our most difficult sufferings here on earth, there is a hope, there is a vindication, there is a victory that will occur, that this may not be the perfect place, and it's not. And it may not get any better for us. It may. We don't know. But we know this. That in the end, there's nothing an unbeliever can do to me. In the end, there is something far greater than anything I face here on earth. And so he tells us the point, And he points us to the enduring suffering of Jesus Christ. And what Christ went through. Christ is the ultimate example that, that is given here in verse 18. He's, his suffering here that he's talking about, it was, it was ultimately his death. He's talking about, as he, as he goes on, For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. This is one of my favorite verses to use in sharing the gospel. It is so packed with the gospel truth. And if you can learn to unpack this verse, just this one, you'll be able to, to share the gospel in, in so many settings, with so many different dynamics. The word that's used here, where it says that he once suffered, it's a unique word. It's called hapax. Now, when we, when we study languages for, for Greek and Hebrew and all, there are words that we're told, they're called a hapax legomena. You're like, I could care less about that. All that means to us when, we, when we're reading a commentary and it says this word's a hapax legomena, what it means is that word is only used one time in the Bible. And it's definitively you. It's it, that's it. There's sometimes the hardest ones to figure out what do they mean, but it's only used one time. Peter uses this word hapax to talk about Christ's suffering. He says that he suffered once. It is a unique. It is a definitive death. It was complete. So his suffering. It was one time. He didn't have to die multiple times. In the one death of Jesus Christ, that Lamb that was slain, it was complete. It was definitive. It was unique. It was done. It was something that no one else could do because of the perfection of Christ. His suffering, as you look at this verse, it was real. His suffering was real. He suffered, and it says he was being put to death. The word suffered has the idea of he was brutalized. He was tormented. He was severely beaten. When he was put to death, I mean, it's, it's plain and simple. At the end of the, being put to death, we all understand what death is, right? I mean, death is death. Is death. There's the, he ceased to live. He died on that cross. So Peter testifies here that Jesus truly suffered to the point of physical death. That was the ultimate suffering. Remember, in the perspective of what Peter's talking about, keep this in mind going through this passage. People who were doing right were suffering. He's using Christ. Christ always did right, and he was suffering. So ultimate picture here, the one who is suffering, the one who is doing right, it was still suffering. So he suffered, and he suffers this ultimate suffering. His suffering, it was undeserved. Do you notice what it says? That he died the just for the unjust. So he suffered the just for the unjust. The word for has this idea of in the place of. Those of us who were unjust, every single human here in this building and on planet Earth for all of eternity is unjust. We do not have the righteousness to be able to attain heaven, to be able to enter into heaven, and we had that sin problem. 
So therefore, because I am a sinner, I needed somebody to die in my place. So Jesus was not, just punished, was, was not punished for his own sins. He was punished for the unjust people's sins, for us. His death then becomes substitutionary. He took our place. He was the one who, on our behalf, died on that cross, took that suffering. We, we know the verses, Romans 5, 8, that he demonstrates his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 10, the, the good shepherd gave his life, what? For his sheep. Titus 2, 14. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all of our iniquities. 1 Corinthians 15. For I have delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. As you look at the suffering of Christ and everything we go through, we look and say, wait, he took our place. It was complete. His suffering was undeserved. He was righteous. He was doing right, and yet he suffered on that. Truly suffered, even though he did not deserve it. You go on. Christ's suffering, it was profitable. See what the verse says? The verse, the verse goes on. He died the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God, to, prov- to provide reconciliation, a payment. Christ's death fulfilled God's plan. It, it reconciles us to God. Did you, you notice what it says here? It, do, it doesn't say, and, and I, I like using this part, it doesn't say that I can bring myself to God if I do enough good. It says, in Christ dying, the just for the unjust, that he might, that he, Christ, might bring us to God. It doesn't say I have any merit. It's, not, it's, it's the grace of God. It's not my own good, good deeds. It's nothing that I do that attains heaven. It is me being brought by God, by Christ's love, by Christ's grace. When I respond in faith to the gospel message and accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, he takes my place. The sin is is there. And it's done, again, once for all. It is a final payment. It is complete. He once suffered, being put to death in the flesh. So Christ died for our sins once for all, and in our place to provide for us access to God. What, what a, a wonderful verse. One that you just, just take the time over the next week or so to just continually think about it and unpack it. And how can you use that in your gospel presentations as people ask you of the hope that's in you? Let me tell you why. How can you handle the suffering? Well, let me tell you about the one who suffered in my place. And, and use this verse and he goes on. I, I like what these, uh, this, these writers, they wrote a commentary together, said, On the cross, Jesus Christ paid in full the penalty for our sin. When Christ died, God's wrath against sin was expressed against his son. God was unsatisfied with Christ's sacrifice, which allowed all who would turn in faith to the Son of God to be totally, once for all, and eternally forgiven. From the moment a person believes on Jesus, he or she stands forgiven, relieved of guilt before a satisfied and a just God. What a great statement. And what a great truth that is unpacked in verse 18 there. To know that that's what Christ did for us. As we hear testimonies, as we see people getting saved, that's what Christ did for you and for I. Is, is suffering though? It was not permanent. What a comfort even to those believers who were going through suffering. Say, it's not the end. 
This was not the end. What happens in the verse? He was quickened by the Spirit. He was made alive by the Spirit. He was resurrected by the power of the Spirit. We don't, we don't celebrate Friday. We celebrate Sunday. We, we reflect about Friday. We're thankful for, for, for Good Friday, but we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection because the power of Christ, he is made alive, and we are given this wonderful, glorious salvation. The death on the cross, it, it started the path of salvation, but the resurrection guarantees our salvation, that we will not be left in the grave, that Christ is the first fruits who is taken up. We will be able to join him one day. We will be there. What a glorious hope in the midst of suffering to look at these Asia Minor believers who are going through the hard times and saying, this isn't the end. Even, even if it results in death, this isn't the end. There is something far greater. There is something far more wonderful that you will experience as a believer of Jesus Christ. So endure the suffering with goals in mind to bring glory to Christ, to share the gospel, to go through those hard times because there's a greater perspective, a greater per- picture. And as clear as verse 18 is, I mean, it is, it is the, it's so nice to just be able to have those verses where you can unpack them and it just lays out the gospel. As clear as verse 18 is, verses 19 through 22, 21 can be like driving through a foggy bank in the middle of Pennsylvania through the windy roads where you can't see three feet in front of you. This, this next section, I mean, you go from very clear to some very, very crazy verse. In fact, Martin Luther said this. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know actually for certain what Peter means. I cannot understand it, I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So with that in mind, have a good night, let's go home. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, there's a lot that goes on in these passages. In fact, I alluded to it the last time I preached. One commentator said there's over 180 different exegetical theories you know, how, how we unpack this, interpret this passage, uh, and how, how it goes about. I have no intention, don't worry, to unpack all of them. We're not going to try and, you know, figure out the, the entire debate. Uh, and honestly, I have no desire to sit here and bore you with all of them either because I got bored reading some of them. I'm like, what is going on here? But I still think it's, it's important for us to understand the text as best as possible and to go through it. And, and I think really the question we need to ask is this. Why did Peter add this? How, how does this bring hope to these believers who are suffering and are reading this? Or is it just a matter of, oh, Peter thought this would be a good time to throw in some really obscure passages about baptism and hopefully people get baptized? Is that what he was just randomly doing? No, Peter, Peter wanted, in the context of suffering, he intentionally walks through this passage. So, so what do we have to, to learn here? I mean, when, when you look at believers and things go, go awry, when Jesus was in the tomb, did God's plan fall apart? No, absolutely not. When suffering or even death comes in our lives for doing good, does evil win? No. But can we feel that way? Absolutely. We start wondering. When we feel insecure, when we feel unsure in the middle of our sufferings, when the hardships arise, what does Peter say? He says, here, let me give you two accounts to think about. And just remember the, the power, the security of Christ the one who you look to, the one who you are trusting your, your life in. Is he really all-powerful? Is there security? Is he, is he going to be able to bring us through? And obviously, we, we know the theological... Yes, yes, yes. But what, how does Peter unpack that here? He starts off in verse 19. By which also he went and he preached unto the spirits in prison. 
Okay? There's, there's a lot that goes on there. So what happens here is Christ proclaims victory over death and God's ultimate and final judgment on those spirits. Now the question becomes, who are the spirits? Are they the, the really bad demons in Jude 6 that are talked about who are locked up? Did he go down and did he, did he speak to them? Did, uh, is it the human spirit from the days of Noah? Uh, I lean toward, toward that interpretation, understanding that, because we see that in verse 20, keeping it in, which were sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, so you're giving a historical reference back to specific people who were at that time being disobedient, who were rejecting what God had said. And notice even says that while the ark was uh, preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So he talks about for those, those 120 years, God is giving them the chance and he is long-suffering with them. And these individuals, they were rejecting and continually rejecting what God had established for the plan of the ark to, to, save the, to save the people and to save the world. And yet they were rejecting. And so it seems to me as you go through, and again, there's, there's a whole lot that goes on. We're not going to take the time. This was, not, this was not a second chance for them to get saved. He did not go down and say, hey, let me give you a second chance. That's, that's not what's happening here. In fact, the word that's used for proclamation is the word keruso, which is a, a strong proclamation, not evangelic, uh, euangelion or evangelize. He didn't go and say, here, let me give you an opportunity to get saved. They had their opportunity already. They had rejected Christ. But Christ goes, proclaims victory. He is proclaiming his sovereignty, his superiority over all powers. He's saying, I am in control. And I will lead captivity captive down in other verses. But he talks about here, I'm in charge. He just, it's a proclamation. There's a victory statement that, is, that occurs here. And notice what happens here in the, in the verse. He says that while once long-suffering God awaited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, so these people had that opportunity, but they were disobedient to that. And then he goes on, he says, wherein, that is eight souls. So who are the eight souls? We know, we know they are Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives. You know, basically is, is what we've come to understand who they were based on scripture. Okay, so put it in context, put it in what the people of Asia Minor, there's a great number of people in Asia Minor right now that Peter's writing to that are rejecting Christ, that are ridiculing those who are living for righteousness. And these new believers in Asia Minor are feeling the pressure, feeling the suffering of being in a small minority. They feel like everyone in the world is against them but they're going to keep doing what is right. And God says, you know, there was a time that that happened, that there were eight souls. And yet God sees his children safely and securely through the trouble. The ark shows this beautiful picture of security in God's plan. Even when the entire world is against you, even when it seems like everything is raining down upon you, in Christ's plan, in Christ's designs, there is security. And so he brings that out, that there is ultimate victory over this evil. He proclaims it to the spirits. He even, uh, to those who are causing the suffering, there is, there is victory through Christ. Now he moves then from this picture of preaching and proclaiming to these spirits, and he goes to the picture of Noah and his family, verse 20, 21, uh, as we've already read. And, and this is where it even gets a little bit more sticky. Did you catch uh, verse, the end of verse 20? There were eight souls. How were they saved? By water. Anybody have a theological struggle with that? 
Did we get saved by water? Did Alyssa get saved in the, when she dunked under tonight? Is that when she got saved? But it, it, <laughs> go a little bit further. The figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. See, I'm with Martin Luther and saying, let's have a good night. I don't want it to, gets, it gets a little sticky. But let's, let's just keep it in its context and let's keep going. Saved by water. Remember this, water was not the saving agent in the account of Noah. What did water do? In the, in the flood, was, was the water the saving agent or was it the destructive agent? It destroyed, it brought judgment and condemnation upon everybody. So the water was not that which saved, the water was that which brought death to sinful people. Remember that in, in the perspective. Noah's faith in God and the security in the ark is what saw them through death, the death of the water. So when you, when you look at this passage, they were not saved by the water. They were saved by passing through the water. In fact, the Greek word that's used there for um, uh, just by water, saved by water at the end of verse 20, the word by there it has the, the, you could have it on account of, but the way the Greek is structured there, it actually has the idea of through the water. They were saved through water, through the water, not by the water. How were they saved? They were saved by, by trusting God's plan of the ark, by getting on and trusting that God was going to bring them through it. So they were saved through the water. And then he goes on, you, you get that next little phrase where it says, you know, the like figure whereunto even baptism do, does now save us. Remember, keep in mind, Okay, just keep the, keep the whole perspective in mind. Water was the picture of death with Noah. The ark was not the death, the death. The water is what brought death. And so when we come to passages that are unclear, we need to use the clear to help us understand what is being said. Do you remember Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, when it talks about baptism? Pastor Kim alluded to it today. We are what? Buried in the likeness of his death. We're raised to walk in newness of life. Again, the water symbolizing what? The death, the burial. I mean, you don't bury, you don't bury somebody who's alive. You bury somebody who is dead. It's all, it's all that same perspective. Submersion under the water represented, does, Paul talks about it in Romans 6, the death and the burial. So we are baptized with Christ and like Christ. We are not left in the grave. But we are rescued by death from the resurrection. We, the symbol that Peter uses here of water is picturing that death. Look at, look at verse 21. It says, and, and take out the parentheses for the moment. We'll come back to his parenthetical statement in a minute. The figure, the like figure whereunto even baptism does now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so Peter is talking about here the, the same picture that we have in baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection. The baptism that, that is shown here, it is symbolic. It is a figure. It doesn't save us physically. Uh, the waters of baptism, like the flood, demonstrated that destruction is at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters in that we are identified with Christ, who has emerged from the waters of death through resurrection. Peter is just, he's using this symbol to remind us that we identify with Christ, that we identify in his death, his burial, his resurrection. And he, he uses that picture. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, we have been delivered by Christ's triumph over death. There is security in God's plan. 
There is power because he is over all. And even identifying, because we identify with him in the midst of our struggles, we know that we are God's children. And God sees his children through, and God's children will be, in the end, they will be vindicated. Peter himself is clarifying that he's not talking about salvation here. Now look at that parentheses in verse 21. He looks and he says, he says not putting away of the filth of flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Peter, Peter himself is looking and saying, I'm not talking about when you, when you get baptized that your sin is washed away. He says, no, it's, it's the idea of water doesn't remove, it removes dirt, but it does not simply save. It doesn't remove the spiritual filth, the, the filth of our flesh. It doesn't remove that. Salvation is what removes that. The only way to have your sins forgiven is through the blood of Jesus Christ, not through being baptized, not through identifying with the church, but only through Jesus Christ. And so Peter himself is looking and saying, this is not simply saved by baptism. He's looking at baptism. He's looking at the picture of the ark. He's looking at the destruction of water. And he's looking at all of that together and saying, in the midst of our suffering and in our life, identifying with Christ, going through the sufferings, we will make it. We will endure. There will be ultimate vindication. It may not be here in this life, but he says, I will see my children safely through. You are identifying with with Christ. Now, Peter does highlight with baptism here. He does talk about in this passage where it's not putting away flesh. He says, there is a picture. Remember at the very first part, he says the like figure, the picture that is here. Baptism does does have a picture, a a symbolic nature. We've talked about that even tonight. But it's also a pledge to have a, what does he say? A good conscience toward God. That as we identify with him, that as, as Alyssa stood up here tonight, and as many of you have done before, where you, you are baptized, it is not simply a picture to the past, but it is a dedication of myself. It is a pledge to live right before God and live right before others. So that as I live that way, I now have the opportunity, even in the midst of suffering, to portray to others the great hope that is within me. Because I'm living this way, and it may bring about, as I identify with Christ, and I pledge this way, and I I live this way, it may bring about suffering because I'm going to do right, and evildoers are going to say I'm doing evil. But I'm going to bring it about. And if suffering comes, well, then I understand that God may have a plan and that he is there. And then I'm going to trust that he is, he is going to help me through this. So Peter is just weaving it, weaving it all together and saying our identity with Christ, it really is amazing. There is security in our suffering. That when you are suffering for good, there is an identification, there is an assurance that says, wait, I'm a child of God and this is, this is a good thing. There's a security to know that God is going to bring me through. That, that there is hope. Because as believers, we need to realize that suffering is not the final word. For we share in the destiny of our Lord. We are in Christ, not just in the suffering, but we are in Christ through eternity. Those who, are, who suffered secure victory over these hostile powers. My, my, my security in Christ does not just end when I die. I am brought to heaven. I am given the opportunity to be able to be with Christ. It's not just a, an earth thing. It's an eternal thing. And so as I, I go, I need, to, I need to remember that those who face ultimate suffering now sit in ultimate splendor. 
Look in verse 22 how he wraps it up. He says, hey, remember this guy who's went through this ultimate suffering? Where's he at now? What's the the final answer? He says, "The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, talking about Jesus Christ, is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. They are submitted to him. The one who they caused their su- his suffering. I mean, you can go back to uh, verse, chapter 2 where it talks about submitting to the government that we talked about. As Christ submitted to the government, what happened to him? He suffered. He was put to death. But where's he at now? He's at the right hand of God. And those who caused that suffering at the foot of Jesus, every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The one who went through the suffering is now victorious. The one who went through the the difficulties is now sitting in ultimate splendor, Peter says. That's, That's the end answer. All of these authorities that we've talked about, all, all of these dynamics of being subject and in submission to that we've talked about over the last months, all the way starting back in chapter 2, verse 12, till now, the governments, our, our employers, in relationship to families, in relationship to, to people here at church, all of those different dynamics of people, all those authorities in our life, all those people who we were to be submissive to, they are now placed in submission to the one who is in control. They are all those authorities, as he says, are now made subject, hupatasso, to him. They are placed under him. That's where we started. Chapter 2, verse 12, that's how he wraps it up, that the willful submission of the unrighteous authorities, and now we end up with the unwilling submission of these individuals before the righteous authority God, before Christ himself. So Christ was vindicated, and he now sits victorious. And Peter wants to refresh, to encourage believers as they're going through suffering and difficulties, that the final outcome of Christ's suffering is great that he is in control, that he is victorious, and we can make it. So in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the hardships, maybe not now, but maybe to come, we have to remember, we must place in our mind that Christ is on the throne, that he is above all those authorities, that he is above a Putin, that he is above a, a president of the United States or a prime minister in Canada. He's above all of them. It doesn't matter who comes down the road. Christ is the one who one day everyone will bow before because he's on the throne and he's the one who's securing us and he's the one who's helping us through so we keep our eyes fixed on him because at the end of the day those who are in christ will win we will win we will face and be in a situation that is far greater than anything we will will hear just as jesus suffered as a righteous man and was vindicated so too will be the righteous is suffering worth it it's hard but it's worth it So with all that in mind, we pledge our lives. We pledge our lives in good conscience through our baptism and our identification with Christ to live for him, to place him at the center. We accept that our temporary sufferings are part of God's plan for our life. And we handle our suffering and our challenges with humility, with respect, with dignity, so that as we're asked of the hope that is within us, we have a testimony to share that we might see others not humiliated, but we might see them come to Jesus Christ because of how we handled the hardships that are in our life. It will be worth it. 
it will be worth it. There was a, in college, there was a, uh, a group called Shepherd's Home. Uh, they were, it was, uh, well, Pastor used the illustration of Eddie this morning. Eddie would have been a perfect student at the Shepherd's Home. And they would come to our college and they would sing and they would share testimonies of just some of the, the struggles in their life. And there was one man every year, came every year, shared the same testimony about how he was picked on. He had uh, probably like a cerebral palsy type situation. Barely sing, barely, barely do it, but he always sang this song. And you would, you would listen to him and you're like, as, as a young punk, 18, 20 years old, I would be like, uh, that wouldn't be worth it. I, I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want the difficulties and the sufferings and the battles that this man had and then stand up and sing. It will be worth it all. But he had, a, he had a much more mature perspective than I did. To understand that our difficulties, our sufferings, our battles in our life, in the end, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus Christ. Let's finish with that song. Just thinking about what we've talked about tonight. Oft times the day seems long. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Jesus.